Uh, if you're visiting with us, we, we're working our way, as you can see, through the book of Exodus. And uh, we're up to this uh, beginning of their, their journeys through the wilderness. Uh, this passage contains uh, three tests uh, spread over the first few weeks of their, their flight from Egypt. Uh, the first test is a test of Moses. Uh, the second is a test of the Israelites and then the third is a test of the Lord himself and each test uh, reveals something of the Lord's salvation uh, and something of his character in that. So the first test involving the, uh, the bitter waters is a test of Moses. Remember what Moses was told to say to Pharaoh? They will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Well here they are, three days into their journey in the wilderness. Uh, They're thirsty from their travels and they come to a water source and it's undrinkable. So rather than worshipping three days into their journey, they're complaining. I should say they're complaining again, because remember they complained as soon as they got to the Red Sea and thought they were hemmed in. Uh, This is something that will characterise the Israelites through their wilderness, a people who complain, who grumble, who quarrel. So three days in, they're not worshipping, they're complaining. uh, The Lord doesn't need our worship. He's not dependent on our unfailing trust in him for his identity and security. And it's a good thing too because of this history of the Israelites. They're constantly testing him and he's constantly being patient and enduring with this hard-hearted, fickle, untrusting people. These people, on one day they'll believe him when they see his miracle as he takes them through the sea and then three days later they're complaining because they're thirsty. Now not having water in a desert obviously is a concern but if you would think that with the the memory of what the Lord has just done still fresh in their minds that they would be able to trust that the Lord hasn't led them out here to die as they said. But we shouldn't be too quick to judge the Israelites, should we? How quickly do we do the same? We take our eyes off him and his goodness to us in Jesus. We place them on our circumstances. We begin to wonder whether he really is with us not realising that our circumstances in life are precisely designed to show us that he is with us. See, their, their thirst and their arrival at Marah, the bitter waters, is deliberate. It's part of the Lord's plan. It's there that they have this sign, uh, the bitter water is turned sweet, And it's a picture to them of what the Lord has just done. He's taken them from the bitterness of slavery 
into the sweetness of freedom. I don't know about you, I don't normally think of water as being sweet because it's tasteless, isn't it? In fact, we feel the need to supplement water with flavour and with sweetness. But this is a sweetness of contrast. If you've been walking through a desert place for three days with no water, uh, there's a sweetness in having your thirst quenched. We take water for granted until we become desperately thirsty. In the same way, we appreciate the Lord's salvation more when we also know the bitterness of sin and death, that from which he's saved us. That's ultimately the purpose of suffering, isn't it? To produce a hope that's real and is founded on the Lord's promises, not on our circumstances. But see how Marah is just, it's really the penultimate step before their real destination in this first stage of their journey. He's actually taking them not to Marah but to Elim, where what they receive at Elim is above and beyond. Twelve springs, one for every tribe. It's like a little foretaste of the promised land that they'll eventually arrive at. Now this incident at Marah was actually not primarily for the Israelites' benefit, but for Moses' benefit. It wasn't clear in the ESV that we had up there because most English translations uh, translate it as plural, that the Lord gave them the statute and the command. <clears throat> but the Hebrew in those verses is actually in the masculine singular. It's actually the Lord gave him a statute and a command. <clears throat> and the words uh, to... Uh, say if you obey my commandments I will not uh, send the plagues that I sent on Egypt upon you is actually directed at Moses himself. It is a test for Moses. It's designed to teach him the importance of obeying the Lord in his role of leading the people through the wilderness. If the people themselves are going to be diligent in obeying the Lord, they need a leader who is obedient. If Moses is going to call the people to listen and to obey the law that they'll be receiving very soon, then he also needs to have a heart that desires to obey. So uh, this isn't a verse for us to claim when we're sick, uh, the Lord your healer. We shouldn't think that, that we will be able to uh, bring about healing from God or protection from disease by our obedience to the law. Uh, don't think that you can quote this verse and you'll be safe from coronavirus, as I've seen many people do recently, because this promise wasn't given to the people, to Israel, it was actually given to Moses. It was a call for him to be the obedient leader that the Lord had called him to be and a promise that as he did that, he would be protected and enabled. We need to remember, as we saw right at the start of the book of Exodus, that Moses isn't actually presented 
to us as someone that we are to emulate as an example to follow, Moses is a foreshadowing of the ultimate deliverer who will come, the new and better Moses, Jesus. If we're to identify with anyone in the story, it's to be the Israelites. The Israelites were called to look to Moses as their leader. Moses who had been tested and proven in the wilderness. And in the same way we are called to look to the new and better Moses, to Jesus. Jesus who was also tested and proven faithful in his testing in the wilderness. And in every point of his life, He walked in obedience to the Father. Jesus' perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness was what then qualified him as the last Adam to go to the cross to bear all of our griefs and our sorrows. It's because he was the obedient, righteous, a servant of the Lord that it's through him that our wounds may be healed. So this was the first test, the test of Moses as leader of Israel. And by test, it doesn't mean an opportunity for him to prove his worthiness. That's how we tend to think of the word test. Uh, We do a course of study and at the end of it, we do an exam to prove that we've done the work and we're worthy of passing But biblically, a test isn't simply the proof that you've been trained. A test is the thing that actually accomplishes the training. James tells us in chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, tests of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See how the the goal of testing is steadfastness. And that steadfastness has the ultimate result of maturity, expressed in the words uh, perfect and complete. The tests that we face are a gift from the Father designed to bring us to maturity in his son. So Moses' test was a training exercise designed to teach him more of what it meant to be the leader that Israel needed. Well, teaching obedience is also the purpose of the second test. But this is a test now of the people of the Israelites. After a few weeks at Elim, They set out again into the wilderness where their unleavened bread that they brought from Egypt has obviously run out. They get hungry and they presume that their greatest need is for bread and meat. But in actual fact, their greatest need is much greater. And in the process of providing them the bread and the meat... He also gives them this greater thing. Do you see how this daily collection of the manna for six days, followed by the seventh day of rest, 
was there to teach them the principle of the Sabbath. Verse 29, Moses said, See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remind, remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. He gave them manna, but in doing so, he really gave them the Sabbath. And he said in verse 4, this, this was a test whether they will walk in my law or not. He's using the gift of daily bread with none on the seventh to train them in this pattern of a seven-day week with the last day of rest so that they'll be prepared for the time when the Sabbath as a law will be laid down, carved in stone. The Sabbath principle is at the heart of the law. It's a principle that ties it all together. A person who walks in obedience to the Lord, observing his law, would be a person who knew the Sabbath rest of God. Think of the Ten Commandments, the summary of the the moral principles that undergirded all of the other 613 laws in the Torah. The first three are about loving the Lord your God. The last six are about loving your neighbour as yourself and tying them together in the middle is the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath. Now they were given two reasons for observing the Sabbath. The first reason which we're probably more familiar with is the six days of creation followed by the seventh on which God rested because his work of creation was complete. But there's a second reason given in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. We could actually say really that this is the first reason for the Sabbath and that God rested on the final day of creation in anticipation of this day when he would bring his people out of their labour in Egypt into the freedom of rest. Israel weren't the only people in the ancient world with a a seven-day week although you could argue that uh, the other nations that did observe a seven-day week uh, probably got it from the Israelites, but they were certainly the only people who had the Sabbath as part of their week. All the gods of the nations were hard taskmasters who treated the people as servants, as slaves who drove them The Lord, on the other hand, treated his people as sons and daughters. He desired for them to share in his restful joy and delight in all that he'd made. And I think it's not just a historical fluke now that the entire world observes a seven-day week. I think it's just another one of those little hints that he puts in the way things are that are a reminder 
of who he is and what his ultimate goal for a humanity is. So remember that. Every time you look at a calendar and it's broken up into blocks of seven days with a weekend at the end, a day or two of rest at the end. God's goal for you is the Sabbath rest of the new creation. And in the meantime, observing that rhythm of work and rest, work and rest, is designed to point you to that. And it's also designed to help you to live in it, even in the present. The Sabbath ties together these two aspects of loving God and loving neighbour. See, a person who knows that the Lord is their God, who rescued them from slavery, a person who has no other gods before him, a person who doesn't make an image and bow down to it, presuming to to work out their own way of worshipping rather than worshipping in the way that the Lord has prescribed, a person who desires to honour his name in all that they do, well, that person is already living in their hearts in the Sabbath rest of God. And so it will be a natural thing, it will be a delight to observe the external command to observe the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And that person then being in this Sabbath rest of God, they will be in a place where loving their neighbour just flows naturally out of where they are in this place of rest, this place of freedom. They have, they'll have security in knowing the Lord is my God, his, bird, his commands are not tiresome or burdensome. I don't have to keep his commands out of fear or out of obligation. It'll be a joy for me to, to give my life in serving and loving others. In the Sabbath rest of God, there's no living in competition with others. There's no wanting to find security in money or in things. There's no being concerned primarily with my own well-being because I'm at rest in the security of knowing I'm a child of the Father. In that place, well, there's no need to steal. There's no need to kill or commit adultery or to bear false witness. I don't need to clamber my way up to make a name for myself by stepping on others. True worship of God brings us into true Sabbath rest and true Sabbath rest issues forth in loving our neighbour. So that's why, out of, out of all of the commandments, the Lord gave this preemptive teaching about the Sabbath. He was showing the Israelites that the reason for this command wasn't to place a burden on them, but because of his abundant goodness in providing all of their needs. So they could sit down on the Sabbath day, not do any work, and know that they were still being looked after by him. The Sabbath is primarily about living in absolute dependence and trust in God. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray. 
give us this day our daily bread. It's a direct reminder of the daily provision of manna. And then he went, goes on in that sermon to tell us to not be anxious about tomorrow, not to be anxious about what we'll wear or drink or eat, trusting instead that the Father already knows what we need. Instead, he says, we are to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and leave the provision of daily bread to him. I think it's so easy for us to lose sight of that whole principle today. At any time, we can just go down to our local supermarket and there's an abundance of food. Any time of the year, more than enough, more than we need. We're not living off the land. We're not uh, nomads wandering through the desert, wondering whether next week or next month or next year will we have anything to eat or to drink. So we need to be conscious in remembering as we pull the packets off the shelf, put them in our trolley, go to the self-serve checkout, just tap and pay instantly with our credit cards, that that is just as much the generous provision of the Father as was the manna to the hungry Israelites in the desert. Our wealth, our abundance doesn't exempt us from seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. So, the first test was a test of Moses and the Lord revealed himself as the healer. The second test was of the Israelites and the Lord revealed himself as the provider. The third test is of a different kind because the people presume to think that now they can put the Lord to the test as if he hasn't already proven himself to them. Yet he graciously uses this incident to reveal something of enormous significance. He actually reveals the gospel. In the first two tests, the people grumbled or murmured against Moses. Here at Rephidim, we're told they quarrelled with him. It's a very strong word. It implies violence. So that's why Moses came to the Lord fearful of his life, saying, they're they're almost ready to stone me. This is is an open rebellion. Now, when we see the kind of terrain that they were in in that region, that's a supposed possible site of Rephidim, and that's uh, the supposed site of Mount Sinai. Obviously, water was an issue especially for a crowd, remember, in hundreds of thousands. But they'd already seen the Lord's provision of water. They'd already seen his provision of meat and bread. They had no reason, apart from their own unbelief, to think that he wasn't going to provide for them at this new location. The problem with our complaining and demanding from God is that when he does provide what we need, We think he's done it because we've cajoled him or nagged him. We think we've changed his mind or made him aware of something that he doesn't already know. However, everything he gives us is what he's already planned to give. 
He knows what we need before we ask. So of course he knew they would need water. But bringing them to that place and letting them complain was actually part of his plan because of the way he then provides the water. Firstly, note that the water wasn't actually provided where they were at Rephidim, but at Horeb. Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. Horeb was about a day's journey from where they were. But Horeb is where they'll be camped for an extended period of time when they receive the law. That's where they'll need the continuous flow of water. And when they're there and the water is flowing, it will signify the life-giving presence of the Lord that they will know as he enters into covenant relationship with them. The Lord calls himself the fountain of living waters. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then later when Jesus was at the Feast of the Tabernacles, it was a feast where they remembered this time of wandering in the wilderness when they lived in tents. Uh, On the last day of the feast when they specifically remembered the water from the rock, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive. Jesus is claiming to be that rock, that Horeb Signified the source of life-giving water, the one who gives the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That was last week, the crossing of the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So they ate physical food, manna and quail, but their real food was spiritual, the word of God. They drank physical water from a physical rock, but the real water was the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit. And the real rock was the spiritual rock, which is Christ. Secondly, notice how the water was actually provided. The Lord told Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So the Lord positions himself on the rock, So that when Moses takes his staff, the the staff that turned the waters of Egypt to blood and strikes the rock, it's as if he's striking the Lord himself. 
The people have been grumbling in their unbelief ever since they came out of Egypt but have you noticed that so far the Lord has overlooked their quarrelling and their complaints? But he's, he's noticed it but he hasn't judged them for it. Later as they leave Sinai they will be disciplined when they complain but as yet the Lord has withheld his anger. Why? Because in this incident he wants them to see what we might call the principle of substitutionary atonement. When his rightful anger is turned aside from them, doesn't fall on them but is actually absorbed by the Lord himself. Moses' staff that brought judgment upon the Egyptians is now with the Lord's specific instruction turned on the Lord himself. That's why the rock is a picture of Christ. The judgment that fell upon him that we deserved in our sin means that the living waters of the Holy Spirit is available to all who believe in him. We may know that our sins, our uncleannesses are washed away because Christ was struck in our place. It's as if the Lord is saying to Israel, so you want to put me to the test, do you? Do you really want to see the kind of God that I am? Well, I'll show you who I am. I'm not just the God who used signs and wonders and great displays of power to defeat Egypt and bring you out of slavery. I'm not just the God who saved your firstborn sons through the death of the sacrificial lamb. I'm not just the God who made bread fall from heaven, who turned the bitter waters sweet. This is the God that I am. I'm the God who takes a hard-hearted, rebellious, grumbling, quarrelsome people whose hearts are inclined towards idolatry, They're full of ungratefulness by nature. They're children of wrath. They're deserving of judgment. I'll take these people and I'll remove their sins as far as the east is from the west and I'll revive them with streams of living water. Not only that, I'm the God who will bind myself in covenant to this people. I'll swear an oath that will never be broken, no matter how badly they fail in their part. And I'm the God who will one day step into this world. I will literally walk among them and I will be struck by the rod of judgment to atone for their sins once and for all. Do we need any more proof of the Lord's goodness? The fact that God the Son came, stood in our place, came under that rod of judgment, condemned both by man and by God, bearing all of our grumbling, all of our complaining, and that in the face of our grumbling and complaining, he's graciously and abundantly given us the opposite of what we deserve. So Rephidim was renamed... Massah and Meribah, which means testing and quarrelling. And the Israelites asked in that place, is the Lord among us or not? 
Even though any of our attempts to put the Lord to the test is, is an attempt to assault his character, he shows us that he's more than able to pass any test we might want to throw at him. In fact, he'll far exceed all of our expectations. He'll show himself to be the Lord who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. So, whenever you're anxious about the basic necessities of life, or in the words of Jesus, what you'll eat or drink or wear, remind yourself that your God is the God who has given you not just the basic necessities and more, he's given you of himself in all of his fullness in Jesus Christ. He's borne your sins. He's cancelled your judgment. He's secured a place for you in the Father's household. In your hunger, he's provided his word. His word that nourishes our souls and our bodies for eternal life. In your thirst, he's provided streams of living water. He's enabled you to drink of the gift of the Holy Spirit so that you'll never be thirsty again. In your weariness, he's given you the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest of freedom in his presence. So as the Israelites were called to to go to Horeb and to drink, we too are called to come to Jesus and drink. Come and eat your fill from the abundance of his household. Come to him and find rest for your weary souls. He will never turn us away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have proven yourself once and for all in the giving of your Son, that in him we have everything we need. Even though we look at our circumstances and we grumble and we complain, we struggle to see that you are good or that you are with us or that you have given us everything we need. We know that all we ever need is in Christ. Help us to live as a people who don't grumble or complain, but instead worship you with thanksgiving. Help us to know that you are the Lord, our healer, that you are the Lord, our provider, and that you are the Lord who has forgiven and atoned for our sins and welcomed us into your family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final...